0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon. My name is Matt Weibel. I'm the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Today's briefing is on the federal role in public transit. We have two West Coasters with us today, Randall O'Toole um, and Jarrett Walker. Uh, Oddly enough, they both grew up just a few miles away from each other in the Portland, Oregon area, uh, but hadn't met until this morning. Uh, Randall is a senior, oh, and they also both um, have authored several books Um, and our transportation experts. Uh, That's about it for their similarities. They might differ a little bit on their opinion of public transit. Uh, Randall O'Toole is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute with degrees from Oregon State University and the University of Oregon. He covers urban growth, public land, and transportation uh, for Cato. Uh, He has a book coming out later this month called Romance of the Rails, Why the Passenger Trains We Love Are Not the Transportation We Need. Um, So that's coming out later, and on your chairs is a draft policy analysis that's also coming out later this month, charting public transit's decline, and that's Randall's argument, is that we should stop subsidizing a dying industry. Jarrett, on the other hand, will talk about how public transit has a vital role to play in transportation growth and urban growth. Jarrett is an international consultant in public transit, network design, and policy, He's president at Jarrett Walker and Associates, based in Portland, Oregon. Has his PhD from Stanford, and with that, we'll kick it off with Randall O'Toole. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You know, although Jarrett and I grew up with the, uh, near each other and uh, currently live about 150 miles apart from one another. Uh, we had never met, and I really admire the work he's doing. Uh, although we fundamentally disagree about the future of transit, I think he's doing good work with the transit industry, and I wanted to get to know him. And the only way I could figure out to do it was to bring him to Washington, D.C., when I was here, so that we could do one of these events and uh, uh, talk about these issues. Now, I'm fundamentally pessimistic about the future of the transit industry, and he's optimistic, and that's our basic difference. Uh, And I want to talk about why I'm pessimistic and why I think uh, the federal government should cease subsidizing transit because I think the transit subsidies it gives out actually do more harm than good to the cities that uh, are getting them. Transit ridership has been declining steadily since 2014. Uh, This graph is exaggerated because the, the, the zero axis is actually 9 billion uh, rides instead of zero billion rides. So it looks like there's a big decline. It's actually only a 7.5% decline since 2014, about a 12% decline since 2008. Um, but uh, it's declining in all major urban areas. It's declining whether it's rail or bus. Uh, Essentially, all kinds of transit are declining, and I don't see any hope of recovery uh, overall because uh, the forces that are causing it to decline are not going away. And although 7.5% since uh, 2014 or 12% since 2008 doesn't sound terrible, in some urban areas the declines are much, much more. In fact, in more than half the urban areas, uh, major urban areas in the country, it's more than a 15% decline since 2008. Uh, And in some urban areas, it's as much as 30 to 47 percent. Now, transit agencies depend on uh, tax dollars for most of their. Uh, uh, operating funds, but they depend on fares for about a third of their operating funds. So a 30% decline means a 10% decline in fares, which means you either have to raise fares or cut service, and either way you're going to end up with another decline in ridership. So then you get uh, what's called the transit death spiral, where you cut ridership or you raise fares, ridership goes down, so you cut ridership or raise fares, and so on. Now, the the forces that are leading this to happen are, didn't begin in 2014. They actually began in 1913. Uh, at, at, at that time, sit, most urban jobs were in factories, and most factories were downtown. So you had these big downtowns with lots of jobs, and you had what's called a, a monocentric city with the jobs were downtown and people lived outside, and transit brought them to work. That's ideal for transit. But then... Henry Ford developed the moving assembly line, which not only made cars affordable to the masses, uh, it meant that factories moved out of downtown, because moving assembly lines required lots of land, and so they moved out to the suburbs. The jobs moved out to the suburbs, and transit ridership began to decline. This is ridership per urban resident. You can see, except for during World War II, there's been pretty much a steady decline in ridership, and uh, That's because all the jobs were moving out to the suburbs and you had what's called, instead of a monocentric urban area, a polycentric urban area. And transit still could sort of work in a polycentric urban area, mainly buses rather than rail. But today, most jobs in urban areas are not in factories. They're not in big centers. They're in service jobs. They're in retail. They're health, uh, education, and other service jobs. And so you have what I call a nanocentric urban area, no center or lots and lots of little centers, and transit doesn't work very well in that kind of a cent- urban area at all. Uh, Henry Ford's uh, plant for making Model A's was almost as big as the Chicago Loop and bigger than every other downtown in America except for New York's. So obviously, factories could not fit downtown, they had to be located out in the suburbs. Uh, where land was cheap. Even today, transit ridership uh, appears to be directly correlated with uh, uh, the number of jobs that are still in downtown areas. On average, across the United States, only about 7.5% of jobs are in the downtowns of urban areas. Uh, In New York, it's 22%. Uh, In Chicago, it's about 15%. But on average, it's about 7.5%. And there's an 89% correlation between the number of downtown jobs and the percentage of people who take transit to work. More downtown jobs, more people take transit to work because transit works for getting people downtown. It doesn't work very well for getting people to other places. The one urban area in America where transit ridership is unambiguously increasing is Seattle, Seattle. And that's because Seattle has been greatly increasing the number of downtown jobs. Uh, They've gone from 216,000 jobs in 2010 to 292,000 jobs in 2017. That's a huge increase. It's been accompanied by all kinds of problems. Uh, Real estate prices have gone up. Housing is unaffordable. Congestion is terrible. So it's not really a policy that you would advise anybody, but it has helped transit ridership. Um, another problem with transit is that uh, it's slow in 1913 it was the fastest way of getting around it was faster than walking which was really the only alternative that most urban residents had today transit goes no faster than it did in 1913 the average speed of transit is about 15 miles an hour Uh, and yet you can get in your car and in most urban areas you can get where you want to go at about 30 miles an hour or more uh, twice as fast as taking transit. That means the number of minutes that people take to work if they take a car is about half as many minutes as the number they take to get to work if they take transit, according to census data. It also means that if you live in an American urban area, uh, within 10 minutes, you can, uh, in, most, in many urban areas, you can reach more jobs by car than you can reach in 60 minutes by transit. Uh, and in fact, in all urban areas except for New York, you can reach more jobs by car in 20 minutes than you can reach in 60 minutes by transit. So transit just is not going to give you access to as many jobs as, uh, as driving will, uh, and that's true for every other kind of destination, retail, recreation, whatever. Uh, the car just gives you a lot more flexibility. And as a result, auto ownership has dramatically increased in 1960, Americans had about 400 motor vehicles for every 1,000 people. Today, it's more than 800 motor vehicles for every 1,000 people. In 1960, about 20, more than 20% of American families did not have a car at all, uh, and only about 4% had three or more cars. Today, that's reversed. More than 20% have three or more cars. Only about 4% of American workers live in a household without a car. Of the 4% who live in a household without a car, most of them don't even take transit to work. Only about 40% take transit to work. In fact, in most urban areas, more people who live in households without cars nevertheless drive alone to work than take transit to work. How do they drive alone if they don't have a car? Well, maybe they're using their employer's car. Nobody's really sure. But the point is, transit isn't even working for people who don't have cars So it's not a very viable industry in most urban areas. Um, I mentioned the transit ridership has been declining. Where has those riders been going? Well, according to the latest studies, the growth of ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft uh, was about 710 million new trips, in 2017. And surveys show that about a third of people using the, ri- those ride-hailing services would otherwise have taken transit. Well, transit happened to decline 255 million trips in the same year. So that would mean that the ride-hailing captured 90% of the decline in transit. Ride-hailing's not going to go away. It's only going to expand, especially as... Uh, Anyway, that's Waymo's self-driving car, which is operating now in uh, Chandler, Arizona. And they've ordered, what, 60,000 Chrysler Pacificas and 30,000 Jaguars to be uh, self-driving ride-hailing services for cities all across the country. And it's a lot cheaper. Self-driving cars or any cars are a lot cheaper than transit. Americans spend an average of about $0.25 cents a passenger mile driving their cars. And subsidies to driving added up last year to about, in 2017, to about $0.02 cents a passenger mile. Excuse me, 2016, to about $0.02 cents a passenger mile. That's all subsidies to highway, federal, state, and local subsidies. Uh, for transit, transit fares average $0.28 cents a passenger mile, but subsidies average $0.89 cents a passenger mile. So transit subsidies are more than 50 times greater than highway subsidies. The total cost of moving a person a passenger mile by transit is four four and a half times greater than moving a person a passenger mile by car. So uh, not everybody can drive, but when self-driving cars are out there, uh, you'll be able to send your kids somewhere for cheaper than you can send them on transit. Uh, I'll be able to put my dogs in the car and send them to the vet, and I won't have to go with them. And it'll be cheaper than putting them on a transit bus if the transit bus would take my dogs, which they wouldn't. My dogs. It's not your dogs they might take, but not my dogs. Uh, Anyway, um, transit subsidies have been huge. Uh, The subsidies shown on this chart go back to 1970. They've been adjusted to 2016 dollars. The subsidies go as far as 2016, and. The numbers on this chart add up to about 1.3 trillion dollars, and they're growing at about 50 billion dollars a year. So just add two years since then; it's 1.4 trillion dollars. We don't know; we don't have good records of what the capital subsidies were before 1988. So the the sub capital subsidies before 88 was probably another 50 to 100 billion dollars. So we're talking about one and a half trillion dollars in subsidies so far. And what have those subsidies bought us? Well, I showed you before that transit ridership declined dramatically from about 1920 to 1970. And since then, the decline has tapered off. So what the subsidies have done is they've slowed the decline in transit ridership. And you see some ups and downs. The ups are mainly during periods of of high gas prices, and the downs are during periods of low gas prices. I don't think we're going to see another period of high gas prices in the near future because... uh, of hydraulic fracturing. We are essentially independent of the uh, political forces that have caused gas prices to go up in the past. So we're not gonna see those kinds of ups and downs. We're gonna continue to see a decline in transit ridership. Today, uh, the average American spends $150 a year subsidizing transit, and yet the average urban American only rides transit about 37 times a year which means a few people ride it a lot, and most people don't ride it at all. Uh, Transit, the cost of transit, or the the government ownership of transit led to a huge decline in transit productivity. Uh, The number of transit riders carried per transit operator declined by 54% since uh, uh, government took over most of the transit systems in the early 1970s, late 60s and early 70s. After the 2008 financial crash, highway driving declined a little bit, and people in the transit industry said, yes, we're growing, they're declining, we're going to catch up. Well, this is what it looks like. They'd have to go for 100 years of uh, those trends to catch up, but highway highway driving is increasing again, so they're not going to catch up. Uh, An interesting thing is that transit now is for the wealthy people. Uh, low-income people are using transit less and less wealthy the fastest growth of transit ridership is among people who earn more than seventy five thousand dollars a year the median income of transit riders today is higher than the median income of uh, workers overall Uh, so we're essentially subsidizing rich people to uh, get to work and uh, and a few years ago Only people who drove alone to work had higher median incomes than average. Today, transit riders and work-at-homes also have higher higher than average median incomes. So why are we subsidizing transit? Well, some people say it's green. It saves energy. It reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Well, that's true, it turns out, in New York, San Francisco, Portland, and Honolulu. Everywhere else, it's not true. Uh, transit is much browner than driving. It uses much more energy and emits much more greenhouse gases on average. This is a nation This chart shows a nationwide average of cars, light trucks, and transit. Transit looks like it 's kind of in between cars and light trucks, but that 's because it 's heavily biased by New York, which is where forty percent of all transit ridership takes place. When we look at individual cities or individual urban areas like Dallas, Washington, and so on. Uh, transit is much, much uh, worse for the environment than driving. So if you want to uh, uh, save energy or reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the way to do it is to uh, buy a plug-in hybrid rather than uh, ride transit. With apologies to John Oliver, uh, how, how are streetcars still a thing? Streetcars were rendered obsolete more than 80 years ago by buses. Buses are cheaper. They're faster. Uh, they can move more people. Per hour, and yet we have cities all over the country building streetcars. How is light rail still a thing? Light rail uh, is uh, extremely expensive. It's costing $200 million a mile to build light rail lines. Uh, for a fraction of that price, you could provide bus service. And if you want to relieve congestion, for a fraction of that price, you could build four lane freeways and do a lot more to relieve congestion. Buses. We're still buying 40 passenger buses, and yet the average number of people riding a bus today is about nine people at one time. Occasionally they might get full, but mostly you have these buses that are running around pretty empty. So uh, here's Waymo's plug-in hybrid that they're using for uh, driverless cars in Arizona. If you want to help poor people, the best thing you can do is give them a car. This is a woman named uh, uh, Lynette uh, Watkins who uh, uh, was having financial problems and a A group called Ways to Work in Wisconsin uh, gave her a low interest loan so she could acquire a car and now she's got a good job and turns out if you want to give somebody, make sure that somebody can become employed and stay employable, give them a cheap car, don't give them a free transit pass because the transit pass won't get them to where they want to go. If we end subsidies to transit, we'll still have transit. We already have Ford Motor Company. owns a company called Chariot that's providing transit services in 10 cities across the country, Uh, and I think we'll have other private transit providers provide transit where we need it. Uh, You've got a copy of my paper, and I want to give another plug for my book, uh, Romance of the Rails. Next Wednesday, October 10th, we'll have a forum uh, on that subject in which uh, uh, rail advocates and I will be able to talk about our positions on why uh, passenger trains are a good or a bad idea. Thank you very much. Oh,
2: it's right there. Okay, good. Um, Great to have a chance to exchange ideas with Mr. O'Toole. Um, I think you'll find at the end of this that there are actually large areas of overlap um, between what he's saying uh, given his experience and what I'm saying as somebody who works uh, full time as a consultant trying to make transit systems better. The fact that I work on trying to make transit systems better is probably evidence that he and I agree about some of the facts about what's wrong with them. The difference of opinion is simply about whether the transit can be saved and is worth saving. But I want to zero in on the question of where is it worth saving. Randall mentioned early in his comments that there are notable exceptions in places like Seattle and New York, where we have extremely dense cities. And Seattle, in particular, is interesting. The best ridership growth performance right now anywhere in the United States, and it has to do with the fact that Seattle is growing service so aggressively. Now perhaps you picked up the Washington Post this morning and saw Faiz Siddiqui's article uh, saying that no one on the WMATA board, the transit agency of this region, will um, say on the record that to get more ridership perhaps they need to run more service but that is in fact what we know in the business you actually have to run service to get ridership and this is why we have the phenomenon of what we call what we both call the transit death spiral it can also as in Seattle be the transit growth spiral because just as as the cuts feed off of each other so the so improvements feed off of each other so let's start with the politics most of you are in a political business And I want to to suggest that the politics of transit are actually explained by the geometry of transit. When you look at where people care about transit, you almost always find this pattern. Um, If, for example, if you run a local referendum on a transit issue and then map out the results by precinct, you basically have a map of residential density, sometimes slightly inflected by education, but mostly it's just a map of residential density. People at high density understand they need transit and people at low density uh, uh, mostly feel that they don't and they are both right because transit is, transit's relationship to density is so extreme. But now I want to be clear. There are actually two different large categories of arguments for transit and they both have to be talked about and they both have to be kept in mind. <clears throat> there is an argument about spatial efficiency about whether a place can function if everybody drives cars or takes Uber and Lyft. There's a different argument about access to opportunity. And now we're really talking about the low income person, the person who can't drive for any reason, the person like myself who just hates driving because he finds it so dangerous and terrifying, whatever reason you have for already not wanting to drive, your access to opportunity in a community. And what you'll notice is that both of those arguments scream loudest when you're talking about someone from a place like Seattle or D.C. as opposed to Virginia. Um, then next step out, you have the suburban intercity market. And the suburban intercity, like how do, we, how do people get from, a, from you know, somewhere out in the southwest to a job at Tyson's Corner? Those are situations where even if the density isn't that great where the trip is starting, they are going to need an enormous amount of road capacity because they are going such a long distance. And as a result, in suburban areas, even if the density is not that great, you get terrible congestion on the freeways and therefore demand for some sort of alternative. Suburban local service. At this point, where we don't have, if we don't, and I'm not talking about a place like Arlington when I say suburban. I'm talking about a place much further out that doesn't really have dense job centers or where the jobs are all in business parks. Um, you're going to get a somewhat low, uh, uh, a weaker argument for transit and it's going to tend to be less about spatial efficiency because that's not the problem. There is still the concern about low income people, there's still the concern about access to opportunity, the concern about how do you get a, a foot on the first step of the ladder to go somewhere with your life. Finally, we get to rural where the spatial uh, efficiency arguments are not only irrelevant but therefore seem ridiculous and comical because the problem of rural life is not a problem of not having enough space. And the access to opportunity argument, there's a thing going on in rural areas where unfortunate people are not as visible to each other as they are in the city. So one of the things that I think is an inevitable consequence of dense urban life, and again, I live in a big city. Um, Randall is fortunate to live in a wonderful country town named, in, in the mountains named Camp Sherman, which I also encourage you to visit. And maybe I'll retire there. But it's, but the daily experience of urban life now in America is the daily experience of the presence of unfortunate people. And inevitably, that once you're out walking, you, you're encountering unfortunate people in a different way from how you're seeing them from your car. It affects how you think about their problems. So that's why we get this sort of, the, the political noise around transit has this shape. And if you uh, work for a congressman who represents an overwhelmingly rural area, I completely understand that transit's not a priority for you. I wouldn't expect that. Um, so, um, so what is the city, though? We've got to work with the fact that cities are places where this issue is absolutely existential. You go into the politics of a place like the city of Seattle or, this, uh, um, or, or the city of New York, and you're not going to go anywhere in those cities. Uh, you're not going to go anywhere in politics in those cities unless you are absolutely screaming about transit. There's no disagreement about that across the political spectrum. Now, if you're a Republican, you say, well, of course, they're all liberal Democrats. I would say, no, they're all people in a dense city dealing with a dense city's problems. And once you're in a dense city dealing with a dense city's problems, transit just becomes inevitable. So you've probably all seen this famous image, but let me go through it again because it is an argument about transit that completely bypasses history and completely bypasses culture. This is a description of a geometric fact. And the great thing about geometric facts, and the reason I like to talk about geometry, is that once we recognize that something is a geometric fact, we understand that it's not about culture, it's not about attitudes, and nobody cares what you think of it. Right? And it's not going to change in response to anybody's opinion. So this, is, this famous image is 100 people and how much space they take if they're all in cars, how much space they take if they're on a bus, and how much space they take if they're on bicycles. Now, it's important to look at the street, too. This is, this is an urban street. It's walled with buildings about five stories. So this is an urban situation. And what this says, very clearly and unavoidably, is that if everybody is in cars, the city is stuck and cannot grow any further than that. People cannot go, and people can't travel more any more than they can now, because they are all stuck in each other's, behind each other's cars whereas if we travel in a more space efficient way which can be either a big vehicle like a bus that gathers lots of passengers or it can be micro vehicles b- bicycles now or scooters or anything else that's about that size where people move without taking much more space than their bodies move so those are takes so those are both valid ways of solving the unavoidable problem that in a city, the definition of a city is lots of people close together, so the definition of a city is that there is not much space per person, that space is precious, and that, therefore, space has to be used carefully and apportioned carefully. One of the things that Randall and I agree on, one of the things that I agree on with the Cato Institute in general, I think there's broad intellectual agreement across the spectrum about this, is that we will get much better urban outcomes, including a much larger market for transit, If and when people are paid for the space, people pay for the space they take in places where space is extremely valuable. That's called; it's commonly called congestion pricing. I prefer to call it decongestion pricing because decongestion is what it buys. Um, But one way or another, we have a a default system right now in our cities. It's a little bit like the old Western idea of squatters' rights. You basically claim your your entitlement to urban space. Your entitlement to a space on the street is a function of how aggressively and violently you seize that space by virtue of piloting a deadly weapon through the space in a way that scares other people out of your way. Right? That's what urban, that's, to me as a pedestrian, that is exactly what the urban experience is. And, that's, and I know people don't intend to do that. We always have the distinction between intentions and outcomes. But it's, that is what produces congestion. Our freeways work the way grocery stores worked in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Which is that the price is artificially low, and therefore people spent stand in line stood in line all day to get bread because there wasn't enough bread because the price was too low that's, that's' that's what traffic congestion is right The price is too low, therefore we are all standing in line. we are stuck in traffic. Traffic is people waiting in line for a scarce resource because the price is too low so the perp- the pr- the principle of congestion, of decongestion pricing is that if we pay the correct price for the space, there will be exactly as much space as motorists really need. And meanwhile, a whole lot of other people will be on public transit, and there will be money for public transit because we're con- collecting this revenue. Um, so it's about space. Now, in, this, in these exciting technological times, and I spent a lot of time uh, debating the tech bros in California about this, Um, I have to remind people that technology has never changed a geometric fact. Technology has never changed the value of pi. Technology has never changed the question. Technology has never changed the fact that big things do not fit in small containers. There is such a thing as a substrate of absolute knowledge about the universe that is not going to change in response to anyone's opinion and is not going to change in response to any invention. So we can run the technological future here Which is that? That's how many people. That's how much space people take if they're on a bus. And then here's what they take if they're in private cars. And then now we have Uber and Lyft, right? So now they take this much space. Um, There's they now Uber and Lyft will tell you, but we take less parking. No, but you do more deadheading, right? So almost fifty percent of Uber and Lyft's driving time is empty, just as with taxis, it's empty going from one call to another. So they're really doubling the amount of vehicle miles that they're generating compared to people driving their own cars, we are essentially, but, but they don't take parking. So we're trading, we're, we're, we're basically, they're basically taking more road space and releasing parking space. It's kind of a wash, really, in terms of their impact. Um, now we get to driverless cars, and it looks like this. Now, the thing about driverless cars, the driverless car people are gonna come at me now and say, but the cars will be closer together, so they'll take less space. That may, work on, that may make a considerable difference on the freeways where stopping distance is quite large. In the city, stopping distance speeds are already low. Stopping distance is already close. There's less space to save there, isn't there? And what's, more, driverless, and, and what's more, you only get that benefit at level five. You only get that benefit when driverless cars have complete uptake. And we're a long way from that, right? We don't have a driverless car that can work in the rain yet, let alone the snow. Maybe we will. But we're a long way from that. And we haven't even begun to approach what the actual issues of social acceptance are. Um, But this situation is even worse because of a phenomenon called induced demand. And if there is one thing that every transportation expert understands, and it seems like nobody else does, and we would like to grab you by the ears and scream about this until you say you understand it, it is that when you make something easier, people do it more. Now people will always describe, and so the problem of induced demand as it applies to driverless cars is pretty simple, which is, look, like a lot of people, I live in the big city, but I love the country, and I would love to have a cabin in the woods. And one of the reasons, I could afford a cabin in the woods in Oregon, but one of the reasons I don't own one is that going out there on Friday night would be a completely brutal and exhausting experience of driving for three hours. And then coming back on Sunday night would also be a completely brutal and exhausting experience that would cancel out any relaxation that had occurred while I was there. And But boy, if I could just read the newspaper and sit in the car and go out to my cabin in the woods, I'd buy a cabin in the woods. And so would everyone else in Portland, and we would chop down the woods and just have cabins, and that's, <laughs> that's induced demand, right? There are a lot of trips I would make in a car if I didn't have to deal with the hassle of driving. And the stress of driving, and I'd make more of those trips, and so would everybody else, and we'd have a lot more traffic. And and basically the idea of induced demand is that that's going to cancel out any any savings we get from running cars closer together. And we're going to have more traffic, unless, again, we intervene with some kind of pricing. So I want to emphasize, too, induced demand is not an economic fact, Induced demand is not a thing we've discovered empirically, although it is. When you stop and think about it, induced demand is an absolute axiom of biology. What is life? Life is something that needs resources. Life is, life is stuff that needs. And life goes out there and needs to grab resources. And if a resource is easier to grab, life will adapt to that and focus on grabbing that resource, right? It's exactly why if you build a freeway, stuff gets built around it, just like barnacles gathering on a rock, right? Um, Because there's the resource, and that's what people want. And you build the resource, and more people come to use it, which is also induced demand. It's also why, in the end, you end up with the same traffic you always had. Finally, I think we'll get to the driverless bus, and I'm very excited about the driverless bus. Some of my union friends aren't as excited, but that's okay. Okay. Because labor is the overwhelming constraint on the supply of public transit. This, by the way, um, Randall mentioned that we see buses that are empty all the time. Very common misunderstanding about transit economics. People see that empty bus and they think that transit is wasteful. So again, please remember, operating costs are about 70% labor, which means that it's a smart business move to run the biggest bus you will ever need during the day. Because that mean, because it is much better for the bus to be too big than for the bus to be too small. For whatever demand you're gonna incur during the day. It also costs a lot of money to pay a driver to take the bus back to the garage and switch it out for a different size bus just because you're in a period of the day where you don't need the big bus. So transit agencies are doing a smart business move by running buses bigger than they usually need as long as they need them at one point during the day. And as a result, you're going to see lots of empty seats, but the notion that that's waste is simply a misunderstanding of the economics of the product. We're actually doing the right thing when we do that, if you want us to use your tax dollars well. So please don't get these things confused. There are several different problems of transportation. There's the problem of emissions and the efficient use of energy for which the solution is electric vehicles. Then there's the problem of the efficient use of labor and safety, for which the solution is autonomous vehicles. And then there's the problem of the efficient use of space, which is a problem that cities have, and the solution to that is big vehicles. Or also, bicycles and scooters, small vehicles, not much bigger than your body, but one or the other. Car, there simply isn't room for cars. So let's come back to this table. Um, this politics the reason that the screaming has more or less this shape depending on what kind of place you're talking about is the result of people actually at least subconsciously understanding the reality of where they live, which is completely understandable. It's completely understandable that if you in a, live in a rural area, transit seems pretty foreign and that if you live in a dense city, transit seems uh, the uh, the poor transit inadequate transit is something that can strangle your economy and you're absolutely frantic about it. Those are both completely understandable things. Um, I should mention one other thing here too, by the way, which is that this, this, this um, spatial efficiency versus access to opportunity, there are also two things going on transit there, almost but not quite correlating to this, is what I call the ridership coverage trade-off, which is that transit agencies have to choose how much they're going to pursue a goal of ridership, and how much they're going to pursue another goal, which is basically availability everywhere in their service area. Those goals are mathematically opposite. So when, you're, when you start judging a transit agency based on its ridership, you first should ask them, is ridership what you're trying to do? Because when I am hired to help a transit agency increase its ridership, if they're sure they want to do that, what I have to do is cut low ridership services and put more resource into high ridership services. And that generally means cutting service to low density areas and putting more of it in high density parts of the city. So when a conservative suburban city councilor comes out to me and say, look, the cost per rider is terrible. If I'm gonna support this, it has to to, um, have higher ridership. I'll say, "I'm excellent councilor, the way to do that is to delete all service to your constituents. That's how the math works. That's how the math works. What we would do is pull service out of lower densities parts of the region, put it in higher density parts of the region. Needless to say, that's politically difficult. The Houston metro redesign, which one of the things I'm known for, strong increase in ridership. Houston's been one of the few places that's that's been posting growth recently. But the public hearings on it were absolutely gruesome. Um, day after day after day the board sat there and, pe- and beautiful people came and told the board that they would be destroying their lives and it was horrible and they had to get through that. So don't assume that transit agencies are trying to do ridership because they're not really allowed to by their, by their policy boards. So finally, I, just to wrap up, also to sort of reach out a hand of friendship to Cato, I want you to observe, I want to point out that the notion that the federal government should be smaller and do less is actually a notion on which you may find some allies in big cities because there is an emerging notion in urban areas that that cities simply do not have enough control over their own destiny. They find themselves to be ruled by states and by a federal government that is primarily concerned with the interests of suburbs and rural areas and that and that they simply do not have the, the powers necessary to do what is necessary to make a big city function. As a result, you're seeing now, um, in, you, you see, we're seeing a number of books, an emerging intellectual tradition among urbanists suggesting that what is needed is, in fact, a devolution of power away from the federal government toward cities, which also, of course, means a devolution of power toward rural areas. Perhaps there's room for some, uh, for some agreement there. So, transportation needs are, there's no such thing as federal transit policy. Transportation needs are only regional and local, for the most part. Um, poor transit in uh, strangles dense cities and extensive regions for geometric reasons unrelated to history or culture. It's geometry, which means it doesn't care what you want, it doesn't care what your attitudes are, and a lot of what seems like an urban-rural culture war is actually just people understandably trying to solve the problems of where they live and not understanding that those other people have different problems that they're trying to solve. Um, so where this comes down to is that it is flexible funding, which I'm a big advocate of. I don't think the federal government should be deciding for a particular community whether money is spent on highways or transit. I think almost every community is better deciding that for itself. So I'd like to end on that note that there is, for those of you who are interested in smaller government, a potential a potential for reaching across the aisle. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Jared, thank you, Randall. We have around 15 minutes left, so we'll open it up to questions. If anybody has any questions, we have a microphone that will be going around.
2: Hello, my name is Jay Arzu. I am a Transportation and Equity Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And I would like to first thank the panel. It was a very interesting discussion. Um, my first question would be um, geared toward uh, bus rapid transit and the fact that we do not do bus rapid transit very well, or gold standard bus rapid transit, I should say, in the United States. I guess this question is more geared toward Dr. O'Toole. Do you believe that, you know, if we're not going to
1: invest in LRT like REL, um, do you believe that we could in, uh,
2: invest in a better uh, bus rapid transit system and redesigning bus systems within cities like Columbus or Houston that have been massive successes? Thank you very much.
1: Well, thanks for asking that question. That's a good question. Um, in New York, I believe it's the uh, the Lincoln Tunnel, they have a lane dedicated to buses, and they run as many as 700 buses an hour. And that that would be called gold standard rapid transit or bus rapid transit. Uh, Los Angeles has the orange line, a bus rapid transit line, dedicated lanes exclusively to buses, and they run eight buses an hour at rush hour, four buses an hour the rest of the day, which means those lanes are about 95% empty. That's a total and complete waste. If you're only going to run eight buses an hour, you don't need gold standard bus rapid transit. You have to be running 150 buses or more an hour to justify dedicating lanes to those buses. Uh, And so I see most cities don't need dedicated bus lanes. Bus rapid transit, yes, make it silver standard or bronze standard, if you want to call it that. Run buses more frequently, have them stop less frequently, uh, and uh, don't give them dedicated lanes because those lanes can be used by everybody and uh, everybody will be better off.
2: Um, It's really just a disagreement really just a disagreement around the edges there. Um, Bus rapid transit is an almost meaningless term in the United States, because you can paint a bus red and write rapid on the side and call it bus rapid transit, and the FTA will actually give you money for that. So um, a couple things. Um, I I think that the case for an exclusive lane, it, it doesn't necessarily happen at eight buses an hour, but you don't need 700 buses an hour either. Um, we, the case for the Van SBRT in, Los Angeles, in San Francisco, for example, is that already without it, more people were going down the street in the buses than in the traffic lanes. And so at that point, it just becomes a fair distribution of space among all the people trying to get down the street. And if you can analyze it in those terms, you know, how, much, how many people are, are in the buses or can be projected to be on the buses if they get past the traffic? And if that's more than their share of the width of the street, I think that's a slam dunk um, uh, but the other thing I want to emphasize is that I think we have not been well served by the way that the federal government has promoted bus rapid transit as sort of like rail transit but on buses it can be that, that's what gold standard means, and but we have very few of those in the United States there are a lot of them overseas, they're quite normal now in the developing world, very very high volume ones, but But bus rapid transit is also just a toolbox of all the different things you can do to expedite a bus through traffic or to make bus service better. And I don't see why we can't open that toolbox and apply it to bus services more generally. So one of the questions I always ask when I'm doing a transit plan is, are you sure, I'm talking about a city the size of Tucson or Indianapolis, and I will ask, are you sure that you want to have a debate about what one place what one corridor in your city will get nice bus rapid transit? Or would you rather be able to take all that goodness and spread it more equally across the network to create a good bus system that is somewhat expedited but that doesn't favor any one corridor. There are places where that may actually be the right answer. And I know from the standpoint of local city councils and local boards, nothing is more agonizing than having a debate about whose district gets it this decade and which district will have to wait another decade. It's it's just practically the definition of of a way to just rip city councils apart and make their lives miserable, and I don't know that it's always necessary. Other questions? in the back yeah hi i'm chuck baker i was
1: curious about uh the news out of wamada i think just last week about the, the the silver line phase two the rfp and from what i gathered from the news it seemed like uh that was a pretty big development in the world of rail transit the idea of opening it up to private competition and perhaps a way to make it more efficient more uh cost effective i thought Perhaps that would be something the two of you would agree
0: on, but I thought I'd, uh, thought I'd ask for impressions on that news.
1: Well, I've seen cases where private operators do, uh, are really efficient in operating bus services as compared to the public agencies. I haven't seen a lot of private operators do rail service a lot more efficiently than public agencies. And so, I'm not convinced that that's going to save taxpayers a lot of money. It might. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to be uh, convinced. Uh, uh, how about you?
2: I'm going to evade the question because I don't know enough about the silver line, although I do have my questions about whether it goes, should go into Loudoun County at all. But, um, but I, I, I would point out this about privatization. Um, The word privatization gets thrown around a lot. It has two, it can mean two completely different things. It can mean what Margaret Thatcher meant, which is different bus companies drive down the same street and the empowered customer will have the choice between Joe's big bus and and Jim's red bus. And that didn't work because the customer actually wants the bus that comes. And so it didn't work at all. And what happened is that Joe and Jim without even intending to, divided up the market, created their own monopolies, and you basically now had all of the inefficiencies of a monopoly monopoly with none of the accountability to the voters that government has. Um, There's also a thing called private contract operation, which is where the government is in control of the service, but hires a private company to drive and maintain the buses. And that's a, that is, I think, a very promising model. It's already happening in New Orleans, in Austin, in Tucson, in a number of other places. And of course, it's the norm in Europe pretty much now. Um, and, and so um, uh, I tend to find that labor unions want, want us to confuse those two meanings because from their perspective, it's pretty much the same thing. But for the customer, it's a completely different thing.
0: Other questions also in the back? Hello there, Kevin Fagan. Um, since no one else has mentioned it yet, there's a terrible cliche question that I think you'll you'll know what it is coming at a certain jurisdiction. Um, plus with the Cato Institute, it's either gonna make you elated or make you groan. So um, hopefully put aside a little bit the issue of that um, jurisdiction's taxation and general government spending. The word is Switzerland.
2: I think I need an actual, I think I need a noun and a verb I mean, there.
0: their, <laughs> um, how much of their public transportation
2: model is adaptable to the United States or U.S. cities? Um, I'll start. Models. I'll start. Um, Switzerland is an interesting example of a predominantly rural country that almost entirely has an urban problem of the efficient use of space. And that has to do with the fact that so little of Switzerland is buildable. And there is such a deeply embedded commitment in the culture to the preservation of agricultural land. And as a result, there is not much sprawl because there is no room for it. And as a result, even for travel between towns, um, and also between travel within towns that are much smaller than we would think of as a transit town in the United States, there is a need for alternatives to driving. And that's a matter of... um, of the, the decisions that they made, which are in their case not conscious decisions, but simply what their culture has been for a long time. Oregon is an interesting example, a thing that you know, we certainly disagree on. Oregon tried to artificially create this reality through state policy called urban growth boundaries that basically limit the horizontal growth of cities. And it's gotten us to some of the same places, but obviously nowhere near where you get if you've been doing this forever as part of your national identity. Well, I'd, I'd
1: have to agree with him uh, on some of that. Switzerland uh, is not a particularly dense country in population, but it has the highest density of rail miles uh, of just about any major country in the world, much higher than any state, almost any state in the United States. And they run a lot of trains, and they run them on time, and they run them so they're connectable. And so they get. Uh, the highest rate of rail ridership in, in any country in Europe, and yet it's only about 15% of travel in Switzerland is by rail, about 75 to 80% is by car, uh, which isn't that, the, the car share isn't that much different from in the United States. The difference is in the United States we fly instead of take the train, mm-hmm. uh, and we take the bus a little bit, but mainly we fly or drive. So, uh, They spend an enormous amount of money subsidizing their trains. We don't spend very much subsidizing our airlines. And yet we actually get a lot more travel. The average American travels well over 15,000 miles a year. Uh, The average uh, Swiss travels less than 10,000 miles a year. So we have a lot more mobility. And it's not just because the United States is a bigger country. Iceland is the second most mobile country uh, in the world, and they're a small country, and yet they they travel well over ten thousand miles a year per capita. They have no trains; it's all by car. So, uh, as far as Oregon goes, um, I think it's a disaster. What's happened? Switzerland, interestingly, has the lowest rate of home ownership in the world because of their anti-growth policies. They made housing really expensive. Oregon is doing the same thing. Oregon's home ownership rate peaked in nineteen sixty. Uh, California's peaked in 1960 Uh, we should have home ownership in Oregon and California of 70-75% the way some other states do but because of this anti-growth policy, these growth boundaries uh, we've made housing too expensive and people can't afford to do that so uh, the land use and transportation policy are definitely connected uh, and I think they're both worth debating
0: In the middle Hi, thank you. Uh, Jessica with Congresswoman Norton's office here in D.C. Um, So as I understand, this panel was called the federal role in public transit. (laughs) I can see here that I should either support flexible funding or cutting all subsidies. But is there anything else that Congress could legislate that would help the situation, even if it's just grants for research?
1: Well, here's one thing that I would say: uh, the federal government's going to give out money for transportation. Uh, Jared's argument is instead of saying the money goes for either highways or transit, you should just put it in a big pot and let the local localities decide. I disagree with that. I like the idea of user fees, and highway users are paying gas taxes that are going into federal do- into the federal trust fund and then handed out to the uh, states and the I think that money should go for highways because otherwise you're betraying the interests of those highway users who are paying those fees. If the federal government wants to give out transit money, though, I would agree with Jarrett. It should go in a pot, and the the pot should be divided out using formulas, not grants, not uh, competitive grants. Uh, The competitive grant process of Tiger and New Starts and other competitive grants have done a lot of damage because they've encouraged cities to – to spend wildly on the wrong things because those are the things that they can get easily funded rather than the things that will actually help their transportation. So I agree with the open pot idea, but make it two separate pots. One coming from user fees for highways, the other coming for transit, which would presumably be from, be, be from deficit spending.
2: I feel differently about it because I see a, uh, a, a road pricing fee as the fair rental cost of the real estate you are consuming by virtue of using such a space inefficient vehicle. And so I see that fair rental cost logically going to the government that essentially maintains all of the transport facilities, and it's therefore entirely reasonable for that government to spend that money in whatever way is most efficient to maximize liberty. So that's, I think, the thing we disagree on.
1: But I agree with road pricing too, but that's a local decision, and Congress should get out of the way and legalize road pricing on all interstate freeways instead of just allowing it on a few.
2: Yeah, um, my friend Brent Totterand likes to say that in many cases, the key to great uh, planning is what you stop doing rather than what you do. And, you know, I think we can agree with that across the spectrum. There are a lot of policies in this country that invisibly and unconsciously assume that the standard citizen is a motorist and that the motorist is the person who counts. And um, I'm sure there are policies that go the other way that you know other people would complain about I think I think if there were more disciplined about saying you know let's design this system for people and make sure that and and whatever makes sense then to to, to get to enable the most people to get where they're going and therefore be freest um, that's what I'd be for.
0: We are out of time. If you have additional questions, feel free to stick around, I'll talk to Jarrett and Randall. On behalf of the Cato Institute, I want to thank both of them for being our panelists, and I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Randall.